My name is Linda Andrews. My name is Joshua Potter. My name is Linda Palmer. I am a digital press operator. I am a mom, a grandma, and a house cleaner. I am an elementary school teacher. I gave my life to Christ in August of 1973. I became a Christ follower in July of 1994. I gave my life to Christ in June of 1984. I have been in New Life since July of 1999. I have been at New Life since April of 1999. I've been at New Life since March of 1999. I grew up in Methodist Church. I grew up going to church my whole life. I grew up never going to church. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is sharing my faith with others. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and not me. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is daily Bible reading. I am everybody. I am everybody. I am everybody. Okay, let me share with you my newest, this is my newest addiction. Somebody keyed me in on that, uh, this this past week is flash mobs. I find these things fascinating. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're just not cool enough. And, and let me just tell you that if you're going to know cool, because anybody that wears Argyle sweater vests, top of the heap. Somebody asked me a few days ago, why do you wear so many sweaters? I said, it covers a multitude of sins. That's why I wear a lot of sweaters. You just don't want to know what's under this vest, okay? Makes me feel like Jim Tret. No, not even that. Okay, so flash mobs. Let me explain what flash mobs are and why I'm fascinated by them. The latest one is from OSU, and it's these hundreds of people who worked for like two and a half months to create this dance routine that was supposed to look spontaneous. Well, it did actually kind of look spontaneous. And uh, they did this in the student union at OSU, and, and uh, it was really cool. And everybody that's there, you know, just has a great time. Well, you discover if you watch this on YouTube that there are lots more of these things. And they happen in train station in Brussels, and they do it to, you know, do re mi from Sound of Music. And then some of the flash mobs don't dance. They're more for some of we more sedentary people. You go to a location, and you just stand really still for like four minutes and freak people out. So these are fascinating. And here's what I find fascinating. I love it when people get together to do something that they couldn't do alone. You've got to have all those people. Now, I'm not sure they needed Gordon Gee at the end because the man has no rhythm whatsoever. When Brutus Buckeye has more rhythm than you have, you're in trouble. Okay? But I find it fascinating. You know, I, I, my love, one of my love languages is being on the same team and working together. That's how I, if, if you'll get on my team, that'll make me, that says I love you to me, okay? So I'm fascinated by these flash mobs because it's just these group of people who are willing to put tons and tons of time and energy and effort into getting something that they couldn't do alone. And I really feel like that's what Paul has been trying to tell the Corinthians. You have got to get on the same page. You've got to get on the same team. There are things that you cannot pull off alone, Spiritually, you're not going to do as well if you're alone. If you're divided, if you're just all over the place, come together and live in community together. And so we continue with our Everybody series. We're going to start 
today in chapter 6, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 6. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have your study guide, those verses are also there in your worship folder. And follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So this is the word of the Lord from Paul to the Corinthians. Now, there are a couple important things we have to see as we look at this passage. There's both a historical background and a biblical background. The historical background has to do with the Greek legal system. It's important to understand at least the basics of this. And then the reputation of the city of Corinth. The Greek or the Roman legal system was one where you could bring your own cases to court. There were really very few lawyers, and those of us who are not lawyers would say, amen to that. So you brought your own cases to court. Most everything was brought to court. didn't matter how big or small. And depending on the size of your case, there would be hundreds, even thousands of people on the jury. Historians tell us that in some cases, the juries were upwards of 6,000 people. Now, I don't think they had the rule where everybody had to agree, so it made things go at least a little faster. So that you have this Greek legal system where you brought your cases to court. Interestingly, the newly forming Christian church had taken on the tradition of Judaism who dealt with all of their issues internally. Okay? All the legal matters were dealt with within the synagogue. And so most Christian churches had taken this on since many of them had come from Jewish traditions. And they would deal with their issues within the church. And the political authority accepted their decisions as law. This helps you to understand what was going on in the last hours of Jesus' life where you have the religious leaders and the political leaders both making judgments against Jesus and they would pass him back and forth to one another. Is that the political leaders acknowledged this religious rule. But here's what was going on. In Corinth, the people of Corinth were known to be highly litigious. They were taking everything to court. And unfortunately, these new Christian believers, instead of bringing everything internally into the body, they would continue to practice going to the secular courts. 
And thus, there is a problem. And so we see this history where it is very easy to take others to court. And the Corinthians had gotten in on this. Biblically, we need look only back to the beginning of this letter to see what Paul is addressing this issue for. See, Paul has already told us that there's the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of the Spirit. And he's very concerned about all this. Paul has already told us several things in this letter. A few of these things are there are divisions in the church, right? We've learned this in the first five chapters. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. No, I'm going to brag about this guy and my standing with them. No, I'm going to go over here and do this. Lots of divisions. Second, that there is indeed a difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the Spirit. The wisdom of the world system and the wisdom that comes from God. Third, we see that the Corinthians struggle with deception. They easily gravitate and hold on to certain things that they feel give them more standing. And then fourth, the Corinthians were just struggling with meshing what they said they believed with how they lived. Here's our theology, here's our doctrine, but here's how we're living. They struggled with this. And so Paul comes to yet another issue where he will say to the Corinthians, you're saying you believe one thing. I know you know the truth because I've taught it to you. I know you have good teachers there, so I know you're learning it, but you're not living it. You're not living it out. And so he starts by addressing this age-old problem that continues really to this day, is that Christians are trying to resolve their disputes in a carnal way. Christians are trying to resolve their disputes in a carnal way. There were grievances between believers, and they were handling them in a way that Paul said was not right. The Christians in this church were taking each other to court, even for minor and frivolous issues. Paul, in one case in verse 2, calls them trivial, trivial issues. They were fighting to prove themselves right. I'm right, you're wrong, and I want a legal system to get on my side and prove it. Because the system was such that anything could be brought to court, the members of the Corinthian church got on board, and they were known to have brought everything to court. Here's the problem, and here's why Paul calls it carnal. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If you'll recall our study of this several weeks ago, Paul called the Corinthians people of the flesh. He said, I I can't call you mature. You're people of the flesh. You're carnal. You are still spiritual infants because... You continue to conduct yourselves in a fleshly, infantile manner. You've taken on the ways of the world. But Paul wants them to realize that the Christian should be of a different temperament from the man who's always screaming for his rights. Who screams for their rights? Well, if you have little children, think about it. They want what they want, when they want it, and usually when they want it is now. Paul's saying, this is, this is who you are. You're, you're, you're acting as infants. You're screaming about your rights. When Paul wants to remind them, you know, we need to follow Jesus, who in Matthew chapter 5 said that it is far better to go the second mile, to give your coat to another, to turn the other cheek. Paul says, you're, you're, you're not following Jesus. You're following the ways of the world you're following a world system you're being fleshly you're being carnal you're being infantile 
in taking all of these issues to court. Well, so there were these grievances between the Christians there in Corinth. And what was happening was that believers were going to unbelievers to resolve and judge their cases. So you have believers who have a problem or an issue, many times something trivial, and they're going to unbelievers to come up with some judgment about that. Paul says to them, out of all the people on the face of the earth, in all of humanity, you of all people shouldn't be running to the secular courts. What you're doing is you're you're going to man's law, but you have a better destiny. You see, there, there is a better end to all this. You have an eternal destiny far better than you're going to receive in a court. Look at verse 4. It says that those we would go to for intervention have, what? No standing in the church. You're going to people outside the church. You're going to unbelievers. And you're asking them for wisdom. Simply put, believers shouldn't look to those who are outside the church, who have no relationship with Jesus, to solve their conflicts. And that's what was happening. Why was this such a bad thing? Well, because believers were depending on the wisdom of those who didn't have the Spirit. See, how can you render justice when you don't believe in the God of justice? Remember chapters 1 and 2? Paul said that the wisdom of God is foolishness to those who don't know Jesus. The truth of the cross is folly to those who have not been transformed by its power. Christians have a wisdom revealed to us through the Spirit. The problem is you're asking for wisdom from people who don't have true wisdom. They even see the wisdom of God as foolishness. Why in the world would you depend on the wisdom of those who deny Christ? For those who see no truth in the gospel to resolve your conflicts. Why would you do this? These are men and women without the spirit. Paul would say to them, no spirit, no wisdom. Thus, their judgments are useless to you. Let me make a couple clarifying points before we go on. First, Paul is referring to more day-to-day matters here, what I would call civil cases, or even less than civil cases. Maybe we'd call these uncivil cases. Well, certainly larger matters were more fit for the secular courts, what we might today call criminal cases. In Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, and I'd encourage you to, to read this, is Paul says there are things that need to be brought before the governing powers. You know, Bill's not going to commit murder in our congregation and we're going to cover it up because we want to keep it all internal, okay? There are certain things that do need to be taken to the civil and governing authorities. Second, Paul understands that some things needing judgment aren't even considered improper outside the church. I mean, are you going to take, you know, best to court for gossip? Now, maybe we need to do something about best, but probably the court's going to just laugh that away. Or what about heresy? Or even things like adultery or fornication. We're going to take that to court? Those aren't even considered improper in some places outside of the church. Third, Paul does not permit Christians in their churches to avoid disclosing a crime to secular authorities. As I said before, we don't not report something that is criminal. Number four, 
Paul does not forbid a Christian from filing a suit against a non-Christian. It's not addressed in the passage. And then fifth clarification is that Paul doesn't say that a Christian can never sue another Christian. He's not saying it's completely improper, but I do believe Paul is saying that an effort needs to be made to resolve it outside of the secular court system. Now you say, okay, you're going places that, you know, that well, think about what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, let me get you looking at things in a different way. Let me, let me back up and let's look at things a little counterculturally here. Because we, you can't just grab hold of what's happening in your culture and say, well, that's how we do it. You see, I think Paul would say, we are not part of this culture. We are part of a cross-culture. And that's where we need to be living. So they were depending on the wisdom of those who didn't have the spirit to make their judgments. And number four, ultimately believers were doing even more harm to one another by going to court. It wasn't a matter about simply going to court. See, there were some in the Corinthian congregation, Paul indicates, who had a habit of defrauding their brethren. They were using sinful devices. They were procuring advantages by use of this pagan system of justice. You know, such persons would have been those who were skilled in lawsuits. And we probably know some people like that, right? They seem to be very good at it. Those who through some circumstance might have gained some preference in these courts. Maybe they know 4,000 of the 6,000 jurors personally or something. But they'd gained some preference in any case. Some of the Christians were being defrauded by other members of the church simply by taking them to court. What else was happening? Well, essentially, by airing their dirty laundry to the world, they were setting aside the revelation of God and just taking hold of what they thought was a better way. Well, we can do it better. This is the way our system operates, and so we'll do that. We're going to set aside what God says. What happens is that we end up communicating to the world around us that our doctrines are right, but we have neither the grace to get along nor the ability to get together. And we don't represent the gospel correctly. We don't represent the cause of Christ. We don't represent Jesus in a way that is correct. Well, we have good doctrines. We just don't have any grace to deal with each other. And so we're going to basically take the reputation of the church and of Jesus Christ and just drag it through the secular mud. And so that is the situation here. And Paul, in his wisdom, says... I have a solution for you. I believe in this passage, and your outline says verses 2, 3, 5, and I would add verse 7 to that. He has an intriguing solution to this problem. Paul says, you need to create a peacemaking community in the church. The creation of a peacemaking community in the church is a solution here. You need to be living differently than the unbelieving world. Now, this would sound pretty basic, wouldn't it? He's reminded the Corinthians several times in this letter that you need to be living differently than the unbelieving world. Any Christian considering bringing a charge against another Christian needs to be careful not to harm the reputation of the gospel in the eyes of non-Christians. Believe it or not, the world outside these walls looks at the church to see if it's different. And unfortunately, especially in our culture today, the church is really not that much different than our culture. 
And what we have to show them harms the reputation of the gospel, in my opinion, in the eyes of non-Christians. In some instances, and we'll talk about this again in a moment, Paul says that it might be more preferable to suffer loss than to publicly harm the reputation of Jesus in the secular culture. So live differently than the unbelieving world. Second, take your issues to wise believers for resolution. Well, I call that a duh moment. Wouldn't that just make sense? Not if you're caught up, not if you and I are caught up in our culture and just doing things the way that our culture does things. Taking our issues to wise believers for resolution. There's a couple interesting statements that I want to look at real quickly. One is in verse 2 and the other is in verse 4. And Paul makes these statements that Christians are going to be judging the world in verse 2. And then he says in verse 4 that they will judge angels. These are intriguing and there are two main views of these phrases. Neither of which are going to change Paul's main point. But just for the sake of it's kind of interesting to see what the two views are. Let's look at these. The first view is that Paul is being sarcastic. Well, we all know from past, past, past parts of looking at 1 Corinthians that Paul is very good at being sarcastic, isn't he? Kind of throws what they think about themselves kind of back in their faces. Well, he, this theory says, well, Paul's being sarcastic here. And this view stems from an interpretation of Scripture that would say, we are not going to be judges over the world and over angels, only spectators of God's judgment on the world and of angels, actually fallen angels or demons. Well, in this case, Paul would be saying this. You teach, you're caught up in this thing where you're so into yourself that you think that you're going to one day be judges in God's kingdom, but you can't even manage to judge earthly matters. What you're, you're, you're real high on yourself that you think you're going to be this great judge over the world and over the demons, you can't even get it right on the simplest of things within your own congregation and community. So that's one interpretation. The second interpretation would be that he is using passages like Revelation 3, Matthew 16, to say we will indeed be judges. Or a better translation would be rulers over the deeds of the world and the rebellion of fallen angels. And there is evidence to that. Well, either way, whether he's being sarcastic and saying, you think you're going to be judges, or, hey, one day, you're going to judge the world and fallen angels. Let's, what's going on here? You, you can't even manage to deal with your issues. Here, why, you know, there's no point in worrying about what's going to come later whether that's really going to happen or not, because you can't even do it here. The point remains the same. Whether the Christians erroneously taught that they would one day be judges or whether the Scripture teaches that they would, he says, you don't seem to be able to manage enough good judgment and maturity among yourselves to act as peacemakers in the church so that you avoid airing your dirty laundry in a very public and very secular setting. Then he gets really direct in verse 5. He says this, I say this to your shame. One translation says, I speak to your shame. 
Today we might say, shame on you. But he says this not in a simplistic sense, but in the purest sense of the word shame. This brings shame to you. Is there not a wise person among you, not one that should be able to judge what goes on between brethren? You mean you've got to go to the world? Is that what you're telling me, is you've got to go to the world? You don't have one person who can make a good decision among you to deal with conflict. Nobody there can do this, huh? Now, this is, he is getting a little sarcastic here. You've been saying it, you say, you've said how wise you are. You love the fact that you're wise, that you know all these things, that you're self-reliant. You don't even have anybody smart enough within your body to settle disputes and cases between Christian brothers. You've got to take it to the world to do that? Paul says, what shameful behavior. How is this possible that this is going on within your community? It brings you shame. You see, Paul says we need to be willing to humbly forgive and live in unity. Yeah, we take our issues to wise believers for resolution. And then we need to be willing to humbly forgive and live in unity. It's interesting, after the first celebration, someone came up and said, you know, it's one thing to have peacemakers in the church who are wise enough to help people deal with conflict and issues. It's another thing to be the kind of people who are willing to listen to the wise person who gives input and who is giving advice on how to deal with an issue. See the importance of both? We have to be willing to humbly forgive and live in unity. See, when, when the wise person within the body says, here's what you need to do, we have to be humble enough and desirous of unity enough to say, yes, I will do that. That's not how I feel. I want to stand up for my rights. I want to hold my ground. I want to get this person. But I'm willing to set that aside for the wisdom of someone in the body who's helping me deal with this situation. Look at verse 7. Look at this. I think this is a very shocking countercultural statement here. Look what he says. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What is Paul saying? Wouldn't it be better to have somebody do wrong to you, forgive them and move on for the sake of unity and the cause of Christ, than to be taking one another to court? Well, how do those questions make you feel? Why not rather suffer wrong? Is that how our culture deals with things? No. Don't let anybody get away with anything. See, the way that we feel, as Paul makes these statements, will reveal much about our level of humility and our desire to follow Jesus in all things. Paul is saying, why not rather allow yourself to be robbed? Why not just accept the wrong? How can he say that? Well, because Paul was well aware that God was still on his throne. God is going to take care of you. You know, it's, I think it's exciting to be a Christian just from this standpoint. To know that God is operating on my behalf. That I don't need to take everything on myself. I don't need to be the judge and arbiter of what is right in any every given situation in my life and try to prove myself and claim my rights and stand up for myself. That God is perfectly capable of doing that on my behalf. 
I've been in ministry for 20, almost 27 years. And uh, I've decided that politicians and pastors have to have the thickest skin of most people in our culture. Well, why? Well, you know, every now and then, just every now and then, someone doesn't agree with a decision that a leader makes. And usually aren't shy about letting you know that they don't agree with the decision you made. Well, how do you stay sane? I think you, I, you have to say, you know what? The, I'm trying to seek God, make the best decision possible, look out for the needs of the church and the cause of Christ, and I'm going to let God take care of this. I, I can't, you, you can't take everything so personally that you that I feel like oh I got to fix that, and I I, I got to go fight for hey I'm I'm right. And the older I get, the more I realize it's it's just not worth it. It's not worth the time. I have to realize God's on the throne. He's going to take care of this. You know if I'm wrong, He'll take care of that. If the other person is wrong, He'll take care of it. It's all going to be fine. God is operating on my behalf. And he's operating on your behalf. There's no need to claim our rights. The Lord knows that we have need of things. And so if someone takes something from us, he'll provide it. What do we know about God? Well, that he takes care of the grass of the field. He takes care of little bitty flowers that are going to be there today and not tomorrow. We know that he clothes the lilies of the field. We know that he makes sure that birds have something to eat. Don't you think that he'll take care of you and me? Why are we fighting for things? Why are we fighting for standing? God knows what we need. He knows what is best for us. We need to humbly forgive and live in unity, understanding that God will take care of it. Then I think Paul takes some time and clarifies this perspective. I think what he wants to say to the Corinthians and what he wants to say to us in verses 9 through 11 is to clarify this. Let me, let me just give you a better way of looking at this. Remember that Christians are being transformed through the work of the cross. Christians are being transformed by the work of the cross. He begins by telling them and reminding them that unrighteousness has no place in God's kingdom. Well, this is very clear in this passage. He lists sins and then says these, these will have no place in God's kingdom. There's really hardly a reason to comment because I think it's so clear. Those who live in habitual sin will not inherit or gain the kingdom of God. They will not be with Jesus in heaven. Now, why does he bring this up? Well, I don't think it's just to list these sins and say, hey... You know, I just, you know, I'm going to arbitrarily in the middle of this discussion of lawsuits and strife and conflict between believers bring this up. No, I think his point comes next. Such were some of you. Verse 11. Don't think of yourself too highly. Apart from Christ, you're nothing. Don't think too highly of yourself apart from Christ. This is a theme in Paul's letters to the churches. In Romans 12, Paul tells us, don't conform to this world. Be transformed. Renew your minds. How? In the things of God. Then he says this. Now listen to this. 
do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Now, I know that none of us need to hear that. But Paul says it. Don't conform to the world. Be transformed. Renew your minds. Don't think of yourselves too highly. The rest of that section talks about how to live together in community where Christ is the head and we're all parts of the body. Well, what's the point? Why does Paul list these sins and say, these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Well, because this is who you were. And Paul's trying to help them realize you shouldn't be operating the way you were. You should be operating as a new creation in the newness of who you are. Why does he point to this idea of getting along in the body and what in the world does it have about not thinking highly of ourselves, not conforming to the world, being transformed? Well, the only way to be in right relationship with Jesus, who is the head of the body, is to be in right relationship with the rest of his body, each other. You're no better than anyone else. You have no rights that put you over any, any other. You can't be suing and fighting and taking other parts of the body to court. Because all you're doing is harming yourself. You're harming the body. You can't conform to this world, and that's what you're doing by taking each other into action like this, into court. You have to be transformed. You're different. You're changed. You need to renew your mind in the things of God. Don't think of yourself so highly. Because you're not. Such were some of you. The body has to give, get along. You have to live in unity. And the less highly we each as individuals think of ourselves, the more highly we think of the body, the body of Christ. Part of this clear perspective is to know the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ. Who are we in Jesus Christ? Well, he says, the last part of verse 11, but you were washed... You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are changed. Christ follower, you are being transformed. Such were some of you. You see, if we can get a right perspective on who we were, and who Christ has made us, why would we go back to who we were? Those are the unrighteous who aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, not only is that the crew that you're trying to get judgment from, but you're acting like them. And not who you are in Christ. And so what are the implications for us today? Well, first, be sure that you have come to the cross for forgiveness of sin. For you, if you're here today and are not yet a follower of Christ, let me say this to you. At the cross, there is washing. There is sanctification and justification. That simply means that there is complete cleansing from sin. There is a relationship with the God of the universe possible for you. There is a transformation from unrighteousness to holiness. There is a deep and amazing work that God wants to do inside of you. Friend, one day you will stand before God. You will stand before a judge. And it will be God himself. 
There will be no chance to tell him that he's not God. No chance to ask for a different verdict at that point. But today, friend, today, he stands now not as judge, but as Savior. Offering himself to you as your potential redeemer. The cross upon which he died for you as a sinless sacrifice for your sins is in full view before you. It is the only answer for your eternity. Is he drawing you to himself? Respond to him. Admit that he is your righteousness. That apart from his sacrifice, you cannot know the Father. Accept his gift of salvation and washing. Give your life and your will over to him. Give him full control. For today, he is not the judge but the Savior and the Redeemer. The second implication is to remember that we let God be the ultimate and final judge. Let God be the ultimate and final judge. Ultimate and perfect justice will not come until the day of judgment, and that will be done by Jesus. One day, those who habitually practice sin will be exposed for who they are. Unbelieving Non-Christians who live for themselves and their selfish desires on earth only to spend an eternity in hell locked outside of God's kingdom. Here's the truth. You and I are not the final say. You are not the arbiter of all penalties and punishments on this earth. That's God's job. He'll take care of you and he'll take care of those who have hurt you and used you and sinned against you. Let God be the ultimate and final judge. A third implication for us today is to live your life based on who you are now. Who you are now in Christ and not who you were. Listen. If you're a Christ follower today, you are not who you used to be. You may struggle. You may fight sin. You may battle the flesh. The enemy may be after you on occasion, but you are not bound to live as you used to live. You don't have to be that person anymore. You are a new creation in Jesus. Old things are passed away and all things are become new. Who are you now, Christian? Christ follower. You are washed, you are changed. You are holy. This is who Jesus sees when he looks at you. Live like he sees you. Live like who you really are now. And then implication number four, I believe, is this. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Be a person who resolves issues in a godly and biblical way. Now, I know how this works, y'all. Some of you are already saying, I'm not taking anybody to court, so I'm good. Okay, listen carefully. I know it's last blank, so it's pack up. But I'm going to start putting one right at the end. You know, let's pray. That's the last blank that you've got to fill in. 
I'm not taking anybody to court. I'm good. Okay, technically true. But are you holding court in your heart? In the depths of your being, you've got court going on. You are holding on to unforgiveness. You have unresolved issues with a Christian brother or sister. You have determined even in some cases to avoid or ignore or even shun another believer. And you're still holding a heart suit over some other person. Paul would say to you, this is to your shame. In John 15, some of Jesus' last words to us were these. Love each other. How? As I have loved you. Let it go. Love and be free. Be a peacemaker. Resolve issues in a godly and biblical way. Are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Are you resolving issues in a godly and biblical way? Well, what's the principle that we as Christ followers, those who would say with the Corinthians, we we are Christ followers. What principles should we operate on? What's the right attitude of the Christian? I believe it's the attitude of compassion and the attitude of forgiveness. We are to be peacemakers compassionate and forgiving where we say i'm not trying to protect my property what i am trying to protect is my relationship with god so i do what's right before him and not what's right in the world's eyes in our world system in our culture because the most important thing for me is my relationship with him paul says to the corinthians there's no reason to ever to go to court to gain something back that you think you've lost whether it's your reputation or some piece of stuff. If you need something, the Lord will return it to you, probably ten times over again. To be defrauded by a man is certainly not to be defrauded by God. He'll supply everything we need, won't He? We need to be obedient to God. We need to live as a cross-culture. Dealing with our issues internally, and allowing wise brothers and sisters to step into our lives. We need to be peacemakers. We need to live as who we are because of Christ and not who we were. Only then will the blessings of God flow into our lives. Last blank. Let's pray. Father, May we be different than the world. Father, I long for the day when a a survey is done and the, the people who claim to be Christians, their numbers are completely different in some survey than the world. Father, may the world be able to look at us. May those who don't follow Christ be able to look at us and say, you know, I don't know what's going on, but they resolve their problems. They are unified. They are free of unforgiveness. They are free of claiming their rights and the the bondage that comes with it. Father, help us to not think too highly of ourselves. To realize where you have brought us from. From the depths of habitual sin to a life that has the power to conquer sin because of your death on the cross. For those here 
who have not stepped into a relationship with you. They may sense you drawing them to yourself. May they respond to you. For Christ followers here today, for those who claim to know you, may it be our heart's desire to obey you in all things. It's all about you, Jesus. Our singing, our worship is for you. Our giving is for you. Our obedience to the word, it is for you. It is about you and not about us. And so as we sing, may we do it realizing we have the privilege of stepping before the God of the universe, the Savior of mankind, our Redeemer, the one who washes us and sanctifies us and justifies us and thanking you for seeking us out and working in our lives. In Christ's name.